1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers' Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Jordan jarrett Bryan, the broadcaster. Apologies to Chris Martin and Coldplay, but it was a sky full of fireworks and a season full of stars. After 30 years, Liverpool were entitled to write their own lyrics. The Premier League title lift turned into a mass selfie an emotional communion with fans who are heard but not seen until later. The triumph has been collective, both spiritually and in a football sense. It has brought club, city and community even closer together. Jurgen Klopp understandably sees the title as a milestone. Now, Johnny, since football never stands still, what's next on the horizon? (laughs) I think there's plenty next for Liverpool and the motivation
0: for that for Liverpool will will, will come from within. I mean, this is a team that has probably been able to replicate their previous season of 97 points do just as well this year by shutting out everything else, shutting out what Manchester City have been doing. So I think that they will continue to try and get better. Remember, this is a a, a squad that's still relatively young. You look at key players who are still the right side of mid to late 20s. What will matter is, is the other team's ability to to catch them up.
1: Yeah. Is is Klopp almost killing two myths at one time here, Jordan? You know, those myths being that the relentless pressing style that he, you know, encapsulates is too draining to sustain for an entire season. And also that there must be constant and expensive reshaping of the squad via the transfer market.
2: Not to the first point, yes, I think he's proven that, you know, when he first came here, he clearly underestimated the intensity of football in this country. And we saw in the first couple of seasons how they burnt out by Christmas and they just tailed off in, into the new year. He, however, he seemed to have kind of got the balance right in the, his last, last two seasons of keeping that intensity that obviously is a hallmark of his team's football, but also balancing that with knowing when to press, knowing when to go hard, knowing when to keep everything, and when to be a bit more intelligent and cute about pressing and, 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 you know, offering that much exertion in their football. Doing it for 80, 90 minutes clearly doesn't work in most leagues, let alone this league. And I think he very quickly, you know, after a year or two realised that. In, in regards to so the second, what was your second point of your question
1: there? Well, it, it, as much as the, you know, and we look at his rivals or Liverpool's natural rivals, they are talking about more expensive reshaping of their squads. And it's a constant theme, whereas Klopp is saying, well, he might tinker a little bit, but it's maybe only one or two players at most.
2: That's right, yeah. I, I think I'm interested to see what he does in two particular areas uh, next season. I think that he needs to f- refresh the front three. And I know a lot of people might think that's crazy because they, they've scored you know, so many goals in the last couple of years. They're one of the best front frees in in world football. But they're all in and around the, the the 30-year-old mark, I believe. And I just wonder if after two years, a Champions League and a Premier League of really getting everything out of that front three... They're going to need if not one of them replacing but to find if if not that finding some kind of legitimate backup that keeps those front three hungry and on their toes and the other area i think is fallback and i don't think those the robertson and alexander would need necessarily replacing But I think they've been so, again, phenomenal for two seasons. I'm interested to see how he keeps those fullbacks hungry, how he pushes them onto the next level. Does he give Alexander, Arnold and Robertson, say, target? Say, okay, this season, your target, the two of you, I want 10 to 12 goals from you two this season. And, I don't know, 15 minimum assists each from you guys. I'm really... And we know that's a very key part of how Liverpool win their games and score their goals. So if they're going to spend in in any particular area, I think it needs to be in one of the front three areas in either finding an adequate... Someone that maybe isn't quite as good as a front three, but better than a Rigi, Good luck with that. Or finding maybe backups for... The fullbacks that can actually really keep those fullbacks hungry, focused, and striving to be even better and make sure that this two last two seasons hasn't been a peak for those fullbacks. Mm,
1: what about people like Rian Brewster coming back from Swansea? There is a a cadre, Johnny, of, of good young players coming through there. Do you expect them, given the extent of the ambition, to be given sustained chances or will actually clock back into the market?
0: Well, I think he, he needs to do a combination of both. And those some of those youngsters are outstanding. Jordan's right about the, the need to, to refresh things a little bit because if you look at how great teams sustain success and, you know, kind of always feel like a bit of a broken record going back to Alex Ferguson, but he is our template for somebody who was who able to do that with a team. There was always something that came in to refresh a Manchester United team once it had achieved a, a landmark. The, 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 the ideal will be to do it as much as possible from within for financial reasons. I think if they could achieve that balance of, of of giving those kids a chance and William Brewster could be that, that that figure that comes in to help refresh the attack. But if they could also make one special signing as well that might just you know help everything in terms of just pushing things on.
1: Yeah. If, if success is collective in nature, as we talked about right at the top of the show, Jordan, who, in your view, are the dominant individuals, the most significant figures?
2: I think I'm going to go for, for, for two, and it's hard in this Liverpool team to just pick two. But I think, first of all, Sadio Mane is just phenomenal. I think and again this might sound a little bit weird but I still think he's underrated I think what he offers that Liverpool team is something that I just don't think Salah for all Salah's goals in the last two three years and Firmino's link up play and he's off the ball running that allows Mane and Salah to, to do the damage that they do. I just think Saudi Mane is a collection of all three of those qualities. I think his movement off the ball is brilliant. I think the goals that he offers speaks for itself, as well as the, the pace he offers, the defensive cover he offers. I think he's a really key component of many key components in that side. And the other, other obvious one, I think, is Virgil van Dijk. I actually think Virgil van Dijk this season has been absolutely phenomenal and I still think he's been two levels lower than last season. I think he's dropped off this season a level or two. And I still think he's been absolutely... I think he will go down if on this trajectory as arguably one of the greatest Premier League, if not the greatest Premier League centre-back of all time. And I know people talk about Vidic, won multiple titles, Rio Ferdinand, Vincent Company, John Terry. I think three, four years' time, he could easily go down. He could surpass all of them. He looks like... Another old cliche, but a a, a footballer on the pitch of boys, a man on the pitch of boys, first of all, physically, he's huge. He doesn't have to actually break stride that much to catch up people who are really, really quick. He just seems always in control. He's, He's talking to his teammates without ever seeming like he's flustered. In the air, you can't you can't touch him. He's, he's not afraid to go to the ground or on the slide. I think if you take him out of that team, I think that they are a completely different team, not only defensively, but I think the attack, get confidence knowing they have the best centre-back in the world at the back. So w- whatever happens, worst case, nine times out of ten, he will get them out of jail. So they were the two key dominant figures, I would say, in a team of brilliant players, Alexander-Arnold, Henderson, we know those guys as well. But I'd pick those two as the two that... I think are the most important out of all the important players they have,
1: Johnny. What about the relationship between Jordan Henderson and Jurgen Klopp? It's obviously acute on an emotional level. You can see that in the way they behave around one another. But what about on a footballing level? Is there is there a complete trust with him? How does it work? How does that relationship work? I think every team needs a a kind of uh, I suppose a manager's
0: representative on the pitch, and I do think Jordan's emerged as that. I mean, I, I, one of the, the, the sort of things I'll never forget about this Liverpool team was going with them to the Club World Championship in, um, in Qatar in December. Incredibly difficult assignment, very competitive South American, Central American teams, difficult circumstances. And the player that drove them through that was Jordan Henderson. It, you know the, the games were hard. They were tight. The player with the sort of most ferocious desire to win of, of anyone at the whole tournament was Jordan. And I think he's got that extra level of maybe hunger or desire or whatever it is that Klopp himself wants and has got. And then you talk about tactically. I spoke to Wayne Rooney about this not too long ago and he said he couldn't believe the the tactical improvement or development in Jordan's game and when they were together at England he'd sort of said to him, what, what's Klopp been doing? You know, what, what's he like? Because I can see what he's what he's teaching you. That's not to say Jordan wasn't tactically good before, but, you know, Wayne was just saying, he's just, he's, you could just see somebody that's been absorbed so many lessons. So I think I think for those two reasons, I think tactically, Henderson's very important. And then he's the embodiment of the, of the hunger that he wants. And he's also the link from the past. You know, he's the guy that was there in 2013, Ooh. 14. He's the guy that actually, you know, goes all the way back to, to to Kenny Dalglish and his little leader so there's there's a lot of importance in having Jordan Henderson around and he's he's he been written off a couple of years ago you know he had chronic foot injuries weren't really sure if a player that was based on athleticism was going to sustain his career in the late 20s given given he had those injuries and see him now is is a bit
1: of a marvel I must admit, I championed him as footballer of the year from about Christmas onwards, but through to my capricious nature, I actually <laughs> voted for 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 Rashford on on you know our precept and example rule. I just thought that what Marcus Rashford has done, you know, socially, uh, way beyond the sporting sense, deserved that sort of recognition. As I said, that was pretty capricious, I suppose. Who did you guys go for? So
2: I spoke to you, you gentlemen just before we started recording. and I was telling you that I was batting between Mane and Kevin De Bruyne. And I said to you that I, 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 I leant towards Mane. I'm changing my mind. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going back to Kevin De Bruyne. Um, now, I, I think for any player to any team that wins the league will have at least two or three worthy candidates of player of the year. I think Liverpool have got four, maybe five. So to beat a player that is in the mix, of that's won the title, I think you have to do something, you have to be quite special. I think Kevin De Bruyne, the reason why I've changed my mind and gone back to him is because I think we're now in the conversation of, this is my opinion, Messi aside, I think we're looking at the best player on the planet right now. I genuinely believe he is the second best football player in the world right now. I think what Kevin De Bruyne uh, can do with a football, I think his influence on the team, again, in a team of hugely creative and world-class attacking midfield players, David Silva, Bernardo Silva, Raheem Sterling, you know, wide, I think just says how good he is. I think, similar to my comment about Virgil van Dijk in three or four years about him going down as the best Premier League centre-back of all time, I think in the next two or three years at this trajectory again, I think De Bruyne could put down a claim to say he's the greatest Premier League player, period. I think he's that good. I think he can do everything. And I think he's not only got the technical skills in his locker to you know damage any player on the pitch it's his work rate I don't think it's any player on the pitch when when De Bruyne plays that outworks Kevin De Bruyne and I think it's a hallmark of Pep Guardiola's sides that I don't care how talented you are I want to see how much you're prepared to work and he obviously is brought into that 100% so I, I I've now gone back and forth back and forth I love Sadio Mane. I think he's been absolutely phenomenal and I think to give the award to someone that hasn't won the title I'm one of those people that believes that the player normally should be a, a player that's won the league, unless there's someone else that's been phenomenal. And I think this season, I think Kevin De Bruyne has been beyond phenomenal.
1: Mm, do you agree, Johnny?
0: Yeah, I, 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 I do. And I, I, I find myself nodding to a lot of that. I mean, it's it, it's really difficult to choose between any of the Liverpool players, quite honestly, because they're such a great collective. And I'd agree that, you know, I think Mane's been the best, most important uh, weapon they've had this year, the best player probably. Jordan Henderson's got the influence that we've talked about. Van Dijk's standards over two years have been incredible. Trent is is, is developing into probably the best right-back in the world. So you can go through the Liverpool team. It's hard to choose between them. And I wrote about this at the weekend. I think that's overcomplicating it. I think you, you take a step back and you just look at the league and actually there's, there's, there's somebody that's overwhelmingly the best footballer and it is Kevin De Bruyne mm. and he will go down to one of the, the greatest in, in Premier League history, greatest foreign players, maybe one of the best midfielders ever to play in England for all the reasons Jordan talks about and I, I instinctively do want to give it to one of the champions because you know I remember for example that, that United team that I've already mentioned in the 90s they hardly won any of these awards. Scholes never got near it. Keane never got near it. In '99, David Ginola was player of the year and, and Fergie never forgot it. But I don't think giving the award to Kevin De Bruyne be in that territory. I think it's just recognising something that's utterly special and also it means you don't have to choose between those Liverpool players. And am I
2: right in saying also he just missed out? Was it two seasons ago? to was it Salah or was it Hazard? There was yeah, some, there was a there was a couple of years ago where it was him and some was it Van Dijk? Or, he missed out to to someone. I think that the, the whole football committee was split between De Bruyne
0: and I think it yes. was the year Van Dijk won it. Um, and no, I think, I think you're right about. I think it was Salah. Was it no. Salah? Yeah, okay. very yeah. close to winning yeah. it, when Salah won it, and, and probably. You know, that that came to Salah had a really hot streak towards the end of the year. He did, he did. And, and, he did. and edged it. But for his body of work, since he arrived, De Bruyne, I think, deserves something.
1: Hmm. I think we are probably all agreed that the, the most potent challenge next season will come from Manchester City. Let's just have a quick look at where they are at the moment. I think everyone agrees also that there needs to be a defensive restructure for, for City to reach the heights that probably they expect themselves to reach. Now, in that context, Jordan, there's a proposed Nathan Ake signing. Is that a sticking plaster rather than a, than a solution to really obvious defensive issues?
2: I can't also make up my mind on Nathan Ake, whether I think he is of that level or maybe a level level below. I think he's better than Bournemouth, but I, I can't work out if he if he is... a a Manchester City centre-back I've always liked Nathan Aki I think despite the fact that he uh, rumours were were rife that Chelsea ended up letting him go and then didn't exercise their clause to bring him back because they just thought that he was too short for for, for a a centre-back that they wanted I I think he's quite intelligent. I think he reads the game reasonably well. I think he's quick. I think he's good on the ball. I think there are a lot of qualities that he possesses that make me think, Okay, I understand why Pep Guardiola is, is at least looking at someone like him. But I do think there's an element of there's no one else out there at the moment that is gettable without spending Virgil van Dijk type money. And I'm not sure. I think the Maguire the, the dismissal of Man City not, not, not you know, pursuing that, that fee says that Manchester City just don't want to... There's no one out there they feel is worth spending 70 £80, 90000000 million pounds on. So there is an element of sticking plaster with, with Nathan Ake in the sense that he's not going to break the bank in terms of, of, of fee, but he's got Premier League experience. He has some of the qualities that I think Pep Guardiola wants. I mean, him next to Laporte next season, do I see that as a as a Premier League winning centre back duo? I'm not 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 totally convinced. Do I think he could do a job within a squad at Manchester City as maybe their third or fourth choice centre back? Yeah, I do. I do. But I think I, I I do I do have concerns that if Manchester City think that a- Ake is the answer to making up 20 odd points. I, I think they they' they're, they're a little bit deluded there I think he's good. I just just not sure if he's the guy to bridge that gap but I think that I think this is about Manchester city feeling that there's just no one out there that is they will spend 80 million if they feel they can get value for money and they clearly feel there's no one out there that they can get that money they refused to spend 80 million on someone like a kudabali who they clearly feel maybe is on the slightly downslide of, of of that hill and the hype that everybody was on a couple of years ago
1: if you're pep guardiola johnny your priorities would be what well it would absolutely
0: be the center of defense but it would it'd be the defensive side generally because they've got two they've got two issues actually the center of defense isn't good enough and They've lost Fulberg. The, the, the greatness of Fernandinho as that defensive midfielder. You know, he's had to play at the back most of the season when he's gone back into midfield. I think you can see that in, the, in his mid 30s now, athletically, he doesn't quite have that mobility to, to get around and snuff out the, the, the dangers that he used to. And I, I'm not quite convinced about Rodri. I think he's a very, very good footballer. Not quite Sergio Busquets yet. He might grow into that, but he's not there yet. So I think they, need a, they actually need something top class in terms of protecting them in the midfield. But you go back, overwhelmingly, the number one priority is centre-back. Ake is a, is a really decent package, but not as a number one centre-back. He's a replacement for Otamendi, but what they need is a replacement for, for company. And if we're looking at the Liverpool template, they did go big on goalkeeper and centre-half, they broke the transfer kind of parameters. And I think City need to, City's transfers are very, very sort of well-structured. They're all kind of round about 50 million. You know, they they, they, they do the same kind of transfer over and over again. Someone in their early 20s, round about 50 million, blah, blah, blah. It served them very well. But I think in the same way that Liverpool just, you know, changed their parameters to get Van Dyke, I think City need to do the same. And and. It's not an era where there's lots of great centre halves around in the world and you keep coming back to Koulibaly as he might be you know, might be slightly older than 51. But he also might just be the, the the option that's out there. I can't really think of anyone else outstanding to to, to bring in, but they definitely need that that absolute top class dominant centre half.
2: I think it's also this question that needs to be asked about why they haven't produced a centre back yet. You know, for their for their, you know, glossy, fantastic academy they've got there. Why isn't there a centre back coming through? That in in the years they've had this academy, you know, why they're not producing a centre back? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you know? Well, what they, I mean? they they took they took Garcia from Barcelona, and and I think he's got a year left on his contract. Pep obviously has faith in him because he has he is playing him. He is, he which, is, yeah. But it, look, it you know you, you read the runes from Barcelona's end; they want Garcia back, and I think he will probably go back at the end of his contract. So. To your point, I think you know the the bigger picture about the club that academy, unlike say Chelsea, hasn't really produced for them. You know, with the obvious exception of Phil Foden coming through. While we mentioned Chelsea, Jordan, do you expect them to get the top four place that Frank Lampard acknowledges is a key performance indicator? Um, I do. I do, I do. Um, I think they'll get the the,
2: the 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 points, or even even a point that they need in the final game, that that gets them that Champions League, that secures the top four spots. I think if he does get that, he's had a really bizarre season. I'm really intrigued by by Chelsea's season this year, and I, and I think Champions League. And if they win the FA Cup final, would 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 represent a very good season for a very good first season for Frank Lampard. But I look at the stats of of, of Chelsea's league season. I think it's like twelve defeats this this season. I mean. That is a that is a phenomenal amount of defeats, and to still get top four probably says more about the league overall than Chelsea itself. But I, I, I do think it's important for them and for him to get that to get that fourth spot. And I do think they'll get it. I think the signings that they they've made and are making show that they are serious about you know joining that club again of, of teams that genuinely can can um, can compete for the title. Lampard's obviously from an era where that's all he knew. You know, as a Chelsea player, that's that's what they did. They competed and won won titles, and he's very desperate to get them back there. Um, but I, I, I do feel that they they will secure that that, that top four spots. And I'm a bit disappointed in Wolves because I think Wolves have really blown it in the last couple of I think Wolves generally had a really good chance of getting top four. And I think we had with the last game of the season with Leicester going to United and Wolves playing Chelsea. That could have been set up for such a phenomenal final game of the season with four teams scrapping out for, for Champions League spots. But, you know, Wolves have kind of blown that. But I do think, and answer your question that they will get, and I do think it's very important for Lampard that they do get it.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it, Johnny, that a bit like City, you know, defensive failings are, are very stark, especially at set pieces, I thought. And I think that you know, Chelsea have actually conceded more goals than Brighton. Now, let's look at their recruitment strategy if we can. Are they going for the shiny toys? You know, I'm thinking of, of Timo Werner. Looks like Kai Havertz is going to come in. You've got Hacking Zajic. Maybe instead of the more pragmatic signings that they, they need, new goalkeepers, central defenders, maybe a fullback, or will money be found for both of those priorities? Well,
0: it's hard, it's hard to see them continuing to, to spend at the rate they're, they're spending. I mean, I'd be amazed if they follow up Havertz with then a 70 million centre-back and a, and a new... 60 million goalkeeper but that's actually what they need and there's an element to the spending that is, is kind of it's like Arsenal used to be or, or, or maybe still are you know it, it, it is chasing the next exciting attacking player and it's what it's, I mean they're going to be an incredible watch and the players are signing are, 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 are really good I mean Werner really good Havertz is a sensational talent Pulisic is, has been a brilliant recruit Ziyech will be good but as we as as we saw in last night's game against liverpool the 5-3 as we've seen all season the team that's conceded into the 50 goals that ain't going to win you the title it might win you cups but it is not going to mm. win you the title mm. and compounding their problems i think rüdiger's declined he used to be their one banker i th- i what i you know kante maybe one of my favorite players in the whole league i do worry about him now he's he's into his late 20s and, and maybe athletically again he's, he's he's starting to decline and the, you come back to the goalkeeper they've just got to bite the bullet I, I know they want him to be there, Alisson they spent that money and, and there's an element that they're trying to almost keep playing him to, to try and you know they're like a gambler chasing chasing oh. losses with them they want they want him to prove right but I don't think he's going to he's just not good enough
1: No it is it, interesting isn't it because if you look at Kepa you know, I, I saw Kepa when he was coming through at, at Athletic Bilbao and you Know the buzz was well, Real Madrid wanted him, he probably came into the Premier League too early. And is he a almost an object lesson, Jordan? In a player who's obviously quite he's got a self possessed personality, but really almost is out of context with the culture of go, the game over here. Maybe, maybe you know, he should have stayed in Spain.
2: Possibly, I think the whole Kepper thing, I, I think we all we and as in we. Uh, the industry and football fans are overcomplicating it I just don't think he's good enough I think he's a good goalkeeper I think he I I think he has some decent moments I just don't think he's the goalkeeper that wins you a Premier League title I I don't think that he is the keeper that Chelsea thought they were signing I think he's got two or three key flaws in in his game and I don't think you can can have that if you want to be a Premier League and a Champions League winning goalkeeper I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did cut their losses on him and replace him I think there's a ruthless streak in Lampard, despite all the smiles and the you know the eloquent speaking that runs through Lampard, that I can see him going to a Brabovich and saying, I want him out, I can't work with this goalkeeper next season. I need, I know you spent a lot of money on him, but I need a better goalkeeper. Manchester City and uh Liverpool have arguably the two best goalkeepers in the world. There's a reason why they've won the trophies they've won in the last two or three years. Those goals keep goalkeepers are setting the bar. This goalkeeper. I wouldn't even put Kepa in the top eight goalkeepers in the Premier League. I, I think there are a lot of keepers better than, than Kepa. So I think the fact is, is just maybe he did leave. He should have stayed in Spain where the culture of football suits him. But I just, I think there's also the fact that he's just not good enough. And just very super briefly, just going back to Johnny's point about the Chelsea squad, I think there's a lot to be, uh, questions similarly uh, posed about Manchester City's academy. I think the, the Chelsea academy that the players have brought through in the last two or three years has been hugely overrated and overhyped. And there's a high chance that if Chelsea do bring in uh, you know, two or three more additions to tie up, you know, to shore up their defence, there's a, there's a strong chance that they could be having an 11 next year, doesn't have any of their youth products in their team. I like Mounts. But there's a chance that Mounts, Loftus-Cheek, hudson Adoy, Tabby Abrahams, none of those players could be in Chelsea's first eleven next season. So for all of the plaudits they've been getting for bringing these young talents through, I find it interesting how the transfer ban's been lifted. Within 18 months, two years, they may be reverting back to what the Chelsea was that we knew five, ten years ago and having no young home-grown products in their team. But yes, a team full of stars, but international expensive stars.
1: Yes, and I'll argue against myself in a sense here, because I think it was 26 of Chelsea's 67 goals this season have been scored by players aged 22 or younger. But does this point out the fact, Johnny, that a youth policy by its very nature has limitations? You know, I, I probably disagree with Jordan on Mason Mount. I just think he's probably been overplayed in the restart. But in in general terms, you know, we all talk about, He's one of our own wonderful, you know, homegrown players. You know, the emotional bond with the fans is that so much romantic hot air?
0: No, it's not, it's not hot air in the sense that when, when you do get that player that has all of that, and you, you know, you go to Trent Alexander Arnold at, at
1: Liverpool, then and Mason Greenwood at United, I suppose.
0: Yeah, Mason Greenwood, you know. Uh, it, it, that player if you can find them has got a value beyond any signing you make because he embodies the culture of the club and he embodies the the fan base and, and there's a real power to that but they're special players and it's an interesting crossroads for for that Chelsea academy because at the start of the season we thought oh well, yeah you know Tomori we've forgotten about Tomori you know he he's he's arrived Ooh. now you know Abraham's arrived Hudson Odoi's just signed this this new contract. He, you know, he was he was going to be going to Bayern Munich a year ago, but now he's staying at Chelsea. And a year on, as, as Jordan said, we, we, you know, we might we might be looking at um, a complete rethink on that and Chelsea going back to to older ways. I think they've been unlucky with some things, like the injury that Hudson Odoi had. It just hasn't been the same, and it was a bad injury that he had. Loftus Cheek, poor fella, his whole history's just been getting dogged by these injuries and you know he's now he's now moving into his mid twenties you wonder if they're starting to think about cutting the losses on him. I think Abraham and Tomori are the two that, from an outside point of view, Chelsea have never actually been sure about you know then the the loans that they gave them until finally giving them a chance when Frank arrived tells me that maybe they've never quite been sure about those two. But the players that they're signing are are key players, young players and attacking players in exactly the areas that they're already covered in terms of their own talent. And apart from Mount, I am wondering now who exactly of that youth crop Frank Lampard sees as as an integral part of his future. I think he really does believe in Mount and I think he's right to believe in Mount. But the rest, I have question marks about them now. Maybe the fullback as well. But that's, I wonder about the rest of them. And it's, it's, it's some kind of shift really for where we thought Chelsea were at the start of the season.
1: What about Manchester United, Jordan? You know, frankly, they looked exhausted in that West Ham game. They only need a draw at Leicester on Sunday. Have they got enough left in the tank?
2: I don't know. Is the answer? I mean, you'd you'd like to think that you know the the fact that they only need a draw would, would be enough to galvanise them to 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 you know really give a ninety minutes of of oomph just to kind of cross that line. I think Leicester will go into this game sniffing a little bit of blood I think that they will be thinking despite the fact that they're not on a good run themselves I think uh, another cliche it's a bit of a cup final for for both teams but I think more so for Leicester although I think United need Champions League football more than Leicester I think Leicester will feel that they deserve Champions League football more than United and I think they do as well they've had a really horrible restart to the league and even since I think January their form hasn't been particularly great I, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got a lot of in my opinion, unfair stick for changing the team against Chelsea in the semi-final of the FA Cup. I do feel the couple of games leading up to that semi-final, United were looking a little bit leggy. And I think if you look at it objectively, of the three competitions that, they, that, that, that are out there for United, the Europa League, top four spot and the FA Cup, I think you have to say if you've got a squad that's getting tighter and, and you're more, more and more tired, the FA Cup, getting to a final of the FA Cup, is going to take, is the least important. I think the West Ham game that they subsequently drew was more important than the Chelsea game. So I understood why he made those changes. It backfired. It didn't work. But I think that it's, it's been compounded by the fact that they drew the game that I think was the more important game following that, that semi final game. So I think it actually will end up being a draw. I, I think Leicester will really give it 100%. I think they'll just miss out. But um, I, I've been very, very critical of Ole and Solskjaer. I still I think I've said you on the last time I was on your show, Mike. Yeah. I still can't believe he's the manager of Manchester United. But fair fair. Let's give him credit. You know, if he gets them top four and possibly Europa League in 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 the bank, you, you know that's the, it's hard to argue against that.
1: Mm, you know Leicester really well, Johnny. What's gone wrong? I mean, I guess that suggests there's a problem, and I
0: I I, I don't think there's 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 a issue that suddenly arisen. It, it's it's just the season evening itself out. They overachieved at the start of the season. I'm not a big. I'm not a big one on the whole XG thing, but you know the the, the XG acolytes <laughs> would tell you. <laughs> They're scoring way more than their expected goals, and, and getting more than expected points, and it's probably evened itself out a bit. They are tired. We know they've got they've got a small squad. They're relying on on key players who are are painfully knackered. They've lost Madison and Chilwell to injuries. The best player, probably Ricardo, has been out since March, and the impact of that on on a little squad is is always going to be. Considerable. so I think it's no more than that. If I had one criticism, I'd say maybe Brendan has tinkered a bit. I was going to ask Johnny that question to
2: you, actually, yeah. what, How is his management of the team in the second half of the season? Are there questions for him, do you think?
0: I think that he... I, th- I don't think he's caused the problems. I think that's, as I say, caused by small squad and the need to freshen things up. But his reaction to them has been to try and make tactical solutions. And I think he's overdone it, actually. I think the, the Bournemouth game when he took off collect at half time, probably the moment he just went overboard in terms of those changes. So yeah, he 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 has to he has to look at that. He has he has a question to to answer there. Um, they got you know we're we're talking about that showdown. It is between two very tired teams, mentally and and physically tired. It's like two boxers in the fifteenth round or something like that. They both look knackered. It's quite a hard one to call, but I. I I think that although United are tired, I think Leicester are just as tired, and probably agree with Jordan that that, that United will, will, will get the point they need.
1: Okay, let's look at the other end of the table, if we could, and relegation. Are we looking at instant karma for Watford?
0: <laughs> well, I'd like to think so, because that decision to sack Nigel Pearson, even you know, in the ranks of of trigger happy Watford decisions, is still number one, and that's that's some list. It goes down as one of the the oddest. Premier League decisions I think clearly an attempt to just get that short-term bounce somehow and get that extra point and you could see by the performance against Manchester City that it's it's had the opposite effect it's deflated the Watford squad further and I, I don't I don't wish ill on any, any club so I'm not going to say oh they deserve to go down but I'll put it this way that Nigel Pearson deserved the chance to keep them up and now he doesn't have the and now, and, and, and now he's removed and you know, personally I've got less emotional buy-in as to, to what happens to them or not, because you, you you can't feel too much sympathy for the owners if they if they do go down. That's that's probably the best way to put it.
1: Don't you feel, Jordan, you know, that life comes at you very fast in football, and sometimes what goes around comes around. I'm thinking, okay, they've got to get something at Arsenal on Sunday, Watford. Now, will Troy Deaney, whose leadership qualities I love Regret his no cojones jibe from a couple of years ago. (laughs) Um,
2: no, I think they're going to win. I actually think Watford win that game um, and, and that's coming from an Arsenal fan I think they're going to win that game I think oh
1: that's why then isn't it it's, it's the natural pessimist in
2: you coming out <laughs> I, I think Watford are going to find a way to win that game I think Arsenal I think their eyes are on the are in the cup final I think Arteta will want them to be on job and um, you know focus on this game but I think it is quite difficult to motivate yourself for a game that doesn't really mean anything okay people will say there's places up for grabs and off the back of the 1-0 defeat Arsenal and Villa, all the players that came in on that game didn't put their, you know, do a good job putting their hands up in the air for a place in the finals. So, you know, there's an argument that maybe some will on this game. But um, I, I think Watford are going are to win that game. I think I'm the only person that wasn't surprised about the sacking of Nigel Pearson. Not mm-hmm. because I think he's done a bad job, but I think Watford have shown us over the last five or so years, these new owners, all they care about is staying in the league. And I think once you remove the kind of emotional element of their decision they don't they don't care all they, they clearly think that sacking him is going to give them that kind of shot in the arm to kind of cross that line and stay in the premier league and if it backfires and they do go down well then, then they'll have to deal with the consequences and it was a bad decision but i i, I don't think they look at these decisions of appointments and sackings through the same prism that i think a lot of us do they they don't care all they care about is staying in the league they don't care about coming top 10 european football all they clearly care about is staying in the Premier League. And I think every decision they make, whether we think it's good or bad, I think is made through the prism of all we care about is getting that Premier League money and staying in the top division in England. So I, I actually wasn't, even by for standards, I, I, I wasn't surprised in they act. Team, him. It was a bit like, oh, OK. But mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think a lot of people are forgetting their recent history. This is what they do. And I think that their actions are guided by... All we care about is staying in the league. And that they think for better, whether we agree or not, they think that this is the decision to make to to stay in the league.
1: Yeah, I spoke to someone who should know. And basically, it became pretty clear that there are all sorts of stuff going on in that dressing room. So it, it will be interesting to see if it all works out for them. You know, I would tend to say, you know, despite what you said, Jordan, that probably Villa have got the better fixture at West Ham. They're safe, which I think we should give credit to David Moyes you know, for that achievement. But do you think they've got that slender one-goal difference advantage? Do you think they could do it, Johnny?
0: I do. They've played the best out of the, the relegation contenders out of the three since restart. They've been quite consistent, Villa. I've, I've been watching them thinking, if actually, if they just had a striker, they'd have been safe by now. And West Ham achieving safety at Old Trafford's enormous because it does mean that they, they, they don't have anything to play for. I think I think Villa will 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 be okay. And I I I, I just think take on board what Jordan said about what the owners do. Watford they they just want to get that sort of short term boost of of sacks. but it was the wrong decision in those logical terms. I think they're spent. So I. I I just do see it as maybe maybe Bournemouth could conjure something at Everton, but my money would definitely be on Villa. I think they've they I think they'll, they'll they'll get a point and that'll be enough.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'll you know, put my neck on the block. I, I do think that Bournemouth probably are at the end of the cycle and probably are a distant third favourites to avoid the drop. I just want to dwell briefly on on the madness of the championship and also to welcome back Slavon Bilic. You know, a manager who deserved more, certainly, at West Ham. You know, he's come back from Saudi Arabia to, to actually galvanise West Brom. And he's almost produced the typical team, which is bigger than the sum of its parts. You you're glad to get him back, um, Jordan? I am.
2: I like Slavon Bilic. I, I like him. Um, I, think, I like honest people. I like um, individuals that speak their mind and have no filter. And he's got very little filter and I like this sort of people. Not only is a journalist because it's a good copy for us, but I just think i I, I think one of my main frustrations about the Premier League and I think football generally nowadays is the lack of characters and personalities. I think we're seriously lacking individuals that, whether they play for your team or not, just people you want to listen to and people that say something. I miss the days of goal celebrations. I miss the expressions of, of, of players, individuals, that I think the amount of money that's in the game now and social media has quelled. I, I think with, I really dislike this kind of robotic, PR'd individual we now have, managers and footballers in the league and I think he's someone that isn't PR'd he's not marketed, he says what he wants he, he says it how he wants I think the fact that English isn't his first language actually helps people like me because it means that he can say what he thinks is, 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 he, he wants to say but say it in a way that actually is maybe not, not the way that he probably, if it was his first language would say it, I, I love him I think he's a good manager as well I think he was harshly treated at West Ham. I think he was a victim of the ownership there at West Ham. I think he's a good manager. I think he's good enough to be in the Premier League. West Brom, I'm less happy about because I just I felt for years, I don't know that what the point of West Brom is. They're a <laughs> team that, I, and, I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. He says being disrespectful, but <laughs> they don't play good football. They don't produce players. They don't win anything. I, I just don't understand what 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 the what the point of what the this sounds really rude I know but I'm struggling to see what as a, as a non-West Brom fan I get from West Brom being in the Premier League at least with Norwich they've played a decent brand of football okay lost a lot of games but they, there was something they had some good players West Brom have never really had players that you're like okay I'll, I'll watch him oh, he's decent uh, I'm, I'm less enthused about West Brom being back in the league but um, definitely about Slavin Village being back in the Premier League for sure.
1: Yeah, or well, to steal their uh, theme tune, boing, boing. You know, they've, uh, they've been promoted to the Premier League for a record fifth time. I think, again, if you look at teams reflecting the personality of their manager, that West Brom team have won 25 points from losing positions in the Championship, which is more than any other club. Will that sort of durability, do you think, Johnny, be enough for them in when they're back with the big boys?
0: Not sure, because... I mean, they've
1: got great firepower
0: and that's probably been the difference for them in the, in the championship. But, you know, they've, they've kind of got, you, they, they talk about teams that are kind of not good enough for the Premier League, but too good for the championship. And, mm. you know, West Brom and Norwich are probably top of that league. And, and I think West Brom have actually got a number of players that might come into that category. So unless they are able to refresh that squad I think they might have a, a typical struggling... I'm, I'm really sorry if any West Brom fans are listening to this podcast. They'll be <laughs> <laughs> they might just face a typical West Brom Premier League season, i.e. struggling around at, at, at the bottom, unless they can do something. Slavin's an asset, of course, and he he gives them a good chance. But they need to spend a little bit of that money. And that's that's probably the reason that they haven't really built anything with longevity at any time they've been to the Premier League they've never really invested they've had a sort of careful ownership of money and if they really want to to do something different I think they are going to have to to try and change that.
1: Okay let's try and pull some things together then I suppose one of the things that you're speaking of there Johnny is is you know the, the reality that that football modern football is being reshaped by an elitist attitude now I think when we're talking about our thoughts for the day your thought actually reflects that doesn't it very much so
0: mike yeah i mean I, I wanted to just briefly talk about the the vote that's going to take place over whether to allow five substitutes to become a permanent feature of the of the premier league and it is about elitism you know it, it, this is this came in obviously for this this sort of restart period as a special measure because of summer football demands on players, blah, blah, blah. And I think we could all understand that. But good ideas that, that, or or rather, ideas that the the elite feel benefit them have got a habit of sticking in football, unfortunately. And this could be one. The bigger clubs are now keen to push this through as a measure for the future. And all it's going to do is it's going to give power to those clubs who can build the biggest squads, Mm -hmm. have the most elite players on the bench, And it's going to detract from those who try and do it a different way. So what we've enjoyed this year with Leicester infiltrating the top four, with Wolves having such a a good season, with Sheffield United challenging, you know, three teams who've done it a different way, but with smaller squads, the prospect of them being able to make impacts again is going to be lessened if we have a five-substitute rule. It's entirely about benefiting those with the biggest squads, the richest budgets, and I think it would be wrong to allow it in through the back door while we're not looking. And the thing that will we'll add, we'll kind of the double whammy, is th- these are, these are difficult, different times financially. So with COVID, I think what's going to happen in every industry, and football won't be exempt, that the biggest corporations will flex a muscle and be able to pick off the, the weaker, smaller ones. So I think we're entering dangerous territory in football anyway. And things like the five-substitute rule that give an advantage to the the big beasts should be resisted you know what's wrong with three let's keep it there and, and let's not just reward those who've got the most expensive 25 man squads
1: okay Jordan what would you like to follow that with
2: yeah I mean it's, just, it's something that has been mentioned quite a bit over the last couple of months and it's something that's really important to me and it's the it's, it's seeing or the, the seeing of non-fans no fans in, in stadiums at the moment for reasons that we we understand why and I, I'm really struggling to enjoy these games. I know nobody's loving seeing these games with no fans inside, but I'm really, really, I, I'm really having to force myself to watch these games for work purposes, to make sure that I'm across, you know, lineups, games, results, all that sort of thing. But I think that on one side, you, you're getting a lot of people talking about how this, hopefully, this period will, will show the authorities and the leagues and the governing bodies the role and how important football fans are to to football and how you know how significant a role having the the energy and the the, the chanting and the, and the noise and the booing and all that drama that comes from having fans in the ground is to football, but I think equally I think we need to flip it and also remember that I hope football fans really appreciate and remember. What they're seeing, and going back to the top of the show, talking about Kevin De Bruyne. I think I hope I'm hoping that when we do get back into football grounds, that we do appreciate the artistry of players like De Bruyne, like Silva, like certain individuals in this league. And I think, as football fans, I'm hoping that having not been in the grounds for so long, when we do get back in, we almost fall back in love with football again because of some of the players that we're seeing as well. You know, Mason Greenwood, I think, is a phenomenal talent. I'm I'm liking Saka, I like Mason Mount, and there are other individuals I could name as well. But I think as well as the, the governing bodies appreciating football fans once we come back into the ground I really hope also the football fans themselves appreciate the, the artistry the joy the passion the fun of what it is to see some of these geniuses at work and I think it was just watching the pictures last night of Liverpool lifting the trophy it, it, it was it, it felt really wrong and I you know I, I, I don't say this very often but I had sympathy for Liverpool fans last <laughs> night and not being able to have 30 years you've waited and the year you win it you can't be there to see your, your 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 team and your captain lift the Premier League trophy. And the fans did, the, sorry, the players did their bit. You know, they did the whole pretending like the ground was full, you know, the chanting and the cheering and the beating in the chest to the fans as if they were there in the stands. But we all knew there was no fans there, so it felt a little bit perverse and a bit awkward. I just hope that everybody appreciates football fans once we are allowed, including football fans, once we're allowed back in into the grounds.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I'll sort of second that, and, and maybe uh, talk about the players as well. Now, you know, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, I helped to oversee the development of thirty odd Olympic sports. Now, what struck me at the time, which was in the build up to the Beijing Games, was how far football was behind in terms of looking after players. Now, it's changed, of course, as the game has become quicker and more physically demanding. Science has caught up. A lot of money and a lot of expertise has been put to good use but now we're on the cusp i think of the latest improvement as the pressure intensifies there's increasing evidence of mental health issues that's why brighton deserve credit for their pioneering move in opening a performance psychology and wellness department A really sort of grandiose title isn't it but It's overseen by someone with experience in rugby, cricket and the NFL. It's a really significant step forward. You see, we treat footballers as commodities, but they're human beings. Everyone, and by that I mean fans, coaches, club executives and journalists, need to think of the person, not the player. Thanks to you once again joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...